Jesus paid it all. Amen? Amen. What wonderful good news. Well, if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Please take them and turn with me to John chapter 16. John 16, we're going to finish the chapter today, which also finishes the farewell discourse. We're going to look at verses 16 to 33. I hope you'll turn there. I hope you'll follow along with me. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of Jesus' disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of God. Let's pray. And ask God to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, please give us the strength that we need today to believe what your word says is true. That Jesus Christ has overcome the world. We pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit. We pray for understanding of mind. We pray for strength of will. We pray, Father, for the reshaping of our affections. That we would love what you love. And therefore live for what you call us to live for. 
which is your glory, Father, spreading all over the earth until the waters cover the sea, Father, that your name would be made much of. Please help us this morning, Father. Please help us to listen to the word of God with faith and then to do the word of God by faith, just as you call us to live. Please keep me from error. Please grant us grace, Father, we, pray, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of us came to church this morning thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? As you were getting ready for church today, maybe making breakfast for the kids or, or scrambling to get to Sunday school on time, did you at any point stop and think to yourself, Christ is risen? He is risen indeed. If we're honest, probably not. For one thing, Sunday mornings are a little bit crazy, am I right? Sunday mornings can be a little crazy. And for another thing, it's not Easter. That's when we greet one another with the phrase, Christ is risen, on Easter Sunday. So if we're honest, most of us arrived today without specifically thinking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the reality, brothers and sisters is that the resurrection of Christ is the entire reason that we are here today. This is the Lord's Day, after all. The day that Christians set aside each week to proclaim that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Without the resurrection, we are the most pitiable people on the planet. But because of the resurrection, we are saved to the uttermost. So while the regular rhythm of Sunday is completely understandable... We should not ever walk through the doors of church without thinking of the resurrection. We are the people of the risen Christ. And this resurrection emphasis is not only true theologically, it's also necessary pastorally. The Christian life, you may have noticed, is full of challenges. In the world, you will have tribulation. Jesus says. What is our refuge against that tribulation? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I fear that my faith will fail, I remember that Christ is risen from the dead. His resurrection is the assurance of my salvation. He will not lose any for whom he has died. When I sin and struggle to believe that God hears my prayer, I remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His blood cleanses me from all sin and opens the way into God's presence, even for a sinner like me. So, when I say that the resurrection ought to be forefront in our minds, that's certainly true theologically. But it's also necessary pastorally. The resurrection is what sustains us through the many tribulations of the Christian life. And friends, this is precisely the dynamic we encounter today in John 16. The disciples in John 16 stand on the precipice of great trouble. I mean, you can hear it as we read through the passage. The disciples will endure sorrow, verse 20. They're going to abandon Jesus, verse 32. And they're going to have tribulation. Verse 33. That's what the disciples stand on the edge of. That's what faces them as Jesus departs. Trouble. And yet in each of those situations, the trouble is not the final word. There's a greater truth 
at work in the disciples' lives. Again, you can hear it as you go through the passage. The disciples are going to walk through sorrow, but that sorrow will turn to joy. Verse 22. They're going to abandon Jesus, but still, somehow, Jesus gives them His peace. Verse 32. And they're going to have tribulation in the world, but Jesus has overcome that world. Verse 33. What's that greater truth that answers all of the disciples' trouble? What's the greater truth? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though Jesus departs for a little while, the disciples will see Him again in just a little while, Jesus says, following His resurrection from the dead. So friends, the point I'm trying to get you to see, the point that I think John wants you to see in this text, is that the resurrection of Christ is not just true theologically, it's also necessary for you to live. The resurrection is what equips Christians to endure the tribulation of the world. Now, how exactly does that happen in a Christian's life? That's what we're going to focus on this morning. How the resurrection of Jesus equips disciples to endure the world's tribulation. That's where we're going to go. There are three ways in this text that the resurrection equips us. Let me give them to you in advance. The first has to do with joy. The second addresses prayer. And the third provides courage. Joy, prayer, and courage. So that's what we're going to think about this morning. How the resurrection equips us. It's not so much... We're not so much going to reflect on the theological truth of the resurrection, but we're going to have an extended meditation on the pastoral fruit of the resurrection in our lives. Three ways the resurrection equips Christians to endure. That's where we're going. Let's start then in verses 16 to 24. Jesus' resurrection produces unshakable joy in sorrow. The first way it equips us produces unshakable joy. Joy in sorrow. From the outset, we know that Jesus has the resurrection in view, even if his disciples don't understand what he's talking about. Look at verse 16, which frames the entire passage. Look at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So we can understand a little bit why the disciples don't, understand what Jesus is saying, it's a bit enigmatic, verse 16, but we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of living on this side of the resurrection. So we know that the first little while refers to the time remaining until Jesus goes to the cross, and the second little while is the three days between his death and resurrection. So the hindsight of history helps us. We know that Jesus is talking about the resurrection. It frames the whole text. The disciples don't have that hindsight yet. So in verses 17 and 18, they discuss one, with one another what Jesus means, and it's clear in all of their back and forth, they, they, don't, they don't follow. The key point for us is that the disciples still have no concept of a crucified and risen Messiah. In their minds, why doesn't Jesus just set up the kingdom right now? Why do you got to go away and then come back to do it? Jesus, just do it now. They don't understand. 
Jesus will address their lack of understanding in just a moment. But first he explains how his departure is necessary for their sorrow to turn to joy. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Again, hindsight helps us. Verse 20 anticipates the great reversal of the resurrection. At the cross, the disciples will weep while the world rejoices. It will seem to all that darkness has won. But after three days, those experiences will be turned upside down. The very heartache that caused the disciples to weep will turn to joy at the resurrection of Jesus. You will see me again, he says. That sounds comforting, doesn't it? It is comforting. But at the same time, Jesus also emphasizes that the sorrow is necessary to get to the comfort of joy. You have to go through Good Friday before you get to Easter Sunday. That's what Jesus is telling them. He he presses this necessity with an analogy in verse 21. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That's a helpful analogy. It's a helpful analogy. There are few joys in life as sweet as receiving your newborn child. But that joy of receiving that child requires the anguish of childbirth. As every mother can tell you, I can't tell you. As every mother can tell you, you don't get the joy without the pain. But the joy is more than worth it, right? So it's a helpful analogy that Jesus is using here. It's a helpful analogy to get to the joy, you have to endure the anguish. But verse 21 is also more than an analogy. Jesus is drawing on the Old Testament at this point. Particularly the book of Isaiah. John loves the book of Isaiah. Jesus loves the book of Isaiah and John's writing about Jesus. So John loves the book of Isaiah. Particularly chapter 66. The prophet Isaiah frequently uses the image of a woman in in labor to describe the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, Chapter 66 in Isaiah is a a good example. You can read verses 7 to 14 if you want to do some further study. The prophet says that God's people would endure the anguish of labor, but in the end, the joy of God's kingdom would be unshakable. So the sorrow and pain would give birth to joy and salvation. Friends, that's Jesus' point here with this analogy. He's giving the disciples a new perspective, a biblical perspective on what is about to happen to him and to them. The disciples have to learn to see their lives, even the sorrow that they're going to feel, they have to see their lives in relationship to God's purpose and plan. So the sorrow of Jesus' death is understandable as a human emotion, but the divine reality that is giving birth there is greater than the sorrow. And the disciples have to see what's coming in light of what God is doing. They have to interpret the now in light of the future. The sorrow today is necessary for the joy to come. That's Jesus' point. And he makes this very clear in verse 22. Look at verse 22. So also, there's the application of the analogy. 
so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's a staggering statement, isn't it? No one will take your joy from you. Can you imagine a joy that no sorrow can touch? It's hard to fathom, isn't it? But that's what the resurrection produces in Jesus' disciples. A joy so strong that it cannot be shaken. Remember, we, we said that, that Jesus' analogy draws from the Old Testament, where the coming of God's kingdom, the coming of God's kingdom is like a woman in childbirth. Anguish now, the kingdom of God comes in the end. So if that's true, then the joy in verse 22, the joy that cannot be taken from you, the joy in verse 22 is nothing less than the joy of God's kingdom coming on earth. It's the joy of salvation, accomplished and finished by the Messiah. It's the joy of redemption. It's the joy of righteousness dwelling on earth. It's the joy of sin and evil and wickedness done away with. In short, the joy of verse 22 is the culmination of God's plan to save His people. Friends, that's what Christ's resurrection gives us. This unshakable joy that endures any sorrow, even turning the sorrow itself into deeper joy. I said just a moment ago that Jesus' aim was for His disciples to see their lives through the lens of what God is doing in the world. You're going to have sorrow now, but you've got to see that joy is coming. That's what Jesus is trying to do. He wants them to understand their lives through the perspective of God's work. So I don't want to make this sound simplistic. I hope, I hope that preaching from this pulpit never sounds simplistic. So I, I'm not trying to sound that way. But I do, I do want to stress to us that this is the pathway to unshakable joy, not just for Jesus' disciples in John 16, but for all disciples, including us. This is the pathway to joy. We tend to think of joy as circumstantial, don't we? I do. We tend to think of joy as circumstantial. When things are going well, I'm joyful. When things are hard, I lose joy. But biblically speaking, joy is quite different. Joy is, in a sense, according to the Bible, joy is the application of Christ's resurrection to everyday life. That's how you get joy. It's the application of the resurrection of Jesus to Tuesday. And joy comes from that. It's so much more than favorable circumstances. Circumstances change in a moment. So if joy is tied to circumstances, then it's hardly unshakable. But Jesus says, he's, I'm, I'm taking Jesus at his word. He says, no one will take your joy from you. So according to Jesus, it's unshakable. That means the joy has to be deeper than circumstances. It has to be deeper than things that can change or something that can be taken away. The joy is deeper than that. What it, then what is it? It's the resurrection of Christ. That's the deeper joy. Part of walking by faith is learning to see 
what happens in life through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. No one will take your joy from you. Not because life will be easy, it won't be. No one will take your joy from you because Jesus' resurrection cannot be undone. No one can put the Lord Jesus back in the tomb. And therefore, joy is unshakable. This is how the resurrection equips us to live with, with this unshakable joy. It's not hoping that God changes my circumstances tomorrow. It is seeing those circumstances through the lens of the risen Christ. And in Him, I rejoice. This is part of what I think it means when the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. But that's a different sermon. This is the first way that the resurrection equips us. It equips us to live with this unshakable joy even in sorrow. Let's keep going. This leads right into the second way that the resurrection equips disciples. From verses 23 to 28, Jesus' resurrection produces believing boldness in prayer. It's the second way it equips us, believing boldness in prayer. We noted in verse 16 that Jesus' frame of reference is the time after his resurrection, and that time frame is the same in verse 23. Look at verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. The opening phrase in verse 23 is significant. In that day, Jesus says. What day is that? The day of his resurrection. When his work is finished and atonement has been made and he's been raised up for our justification. In that day, the disciples will enjoy an incredible privilege of prayer before God the Father. I know it's easy in verse 23 to get caught up in the word whatever. You see it there? Verse 23, whatever you ask the Father will give it to you. I know it's easy to get caught up in the word whatever. We might read that as a spiritual blank check from Jesus. Just ask for whatever you want and you're going to get it. But in reality, friends, the astonishing word in verse 23 is not whatever. The astonishing word is Father. That's the astonishing word. Because of Christ's resurrection, disciples will approach the throne of the living God, and through Jesus, disciples will call the living God their Father. What's more, disciples will then pray with the bold expectation that the Father will answer them in accordance with His will. Verse 24, ask, Jesus says, ask for it, so that your joy in being the sons of God will be brought to completion in the Father's willingness to answer you. Ask Him. Ask Him so that you'll see you're one of His children. Ask Him. That's the incredible part of verse 23. It's not the whatever. It's that we ask whatever of God. And then we call Him our Father. Through Jesus Christ. Now in the context of John 16, do the disciples understand any of this? No. They don't. That's why in verse 25, Jesus refers to a time when he will speak plainly to them. It's the same point that Jesus made last week 
when he said that the Spirit will come and lead the disciples into all truth. It's only after the resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that the disciples are going to understand everything Jesus is saying. But the situation is different for us, friends. We are on the other side of Christ's resurrection. And so with the Spirit's help, we can press deeper into what Jesus is talking about. We, we can understand more fully this privilege of calling God our Father. And that's, what Jesus, that's where Jesus takes us in verses 26 and 27. Look there with me. Verse 26 also begins with the phrase, in that day, so the resurrection is still in view. But listen to how Jesus emphasizes the believer's status before God. Verse 26, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Friends, you could summarize those verses with this phrase, access flowing from love. That's how you can summarize verses 26 and 27. Access flowing from love. Through Jesus, we have access to the Father. This is what Jesus means when he says he will not ask the Father on our behalf. He is not saying that we no longer need his ministry. Rather, his point is that his atoning work is finished so that the way into God's presence is open. Through, the, through Jesus, we have access to the Father. And in the Father's presence, we stand not on our own ability, not on our own worthiness. We stand on the Father's love, displayed in Christ's death and received by faith. Really, that's what prayer is. Here, this, is, this is my definition of prayer. It is access to God, flowing from the Father's love, received by faith in Christ. That's what it means to pray. To exercise your access to God, standing upon His love, received by faith in Christ. That's prayer. Now, I think it's fair to say that most Christians, myself included, take prayer for granted. Here's a scary thought. What if we charted how many minutes you spent in prayer this week versus how many minutes you spent on your phone? My chart would be terrifying to look at. Yours would probably be too. I think most Christians, it's fair to say, take prayer for granted. We have always lived on this side of Christ's resurrection and we have always lived in a context where prayer is not challenged or threatened. Nobody has ever told me, you should stop praying. You better not pray. You're going to get in trouble. No one's ever told me that. Prayer, in other words, feels familiar to us. And as the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Most Christians tend to take prayer for granted. But the reality, friends, the reality is that prayer is arguably the most remarkable new covenant privilege of the Christian. Prayer is this new covenant privilege of access to God that we have only because of Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, let's just think about this for a moment. Prior to the death of Christ, sinners did not have the kind of access to God that believers do now. 
Think of the Old Testament and, that, and the veil in the temple. You know what I'm talking about? We often say that the veil in the temple separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. But the reality is the veil separated sinners from the Holy God. That's why it was there. Access to God, in other words, under the Old Covenant, was not marked by boldness. Not even the high priest would have been bold in going into the Holy of Holies. He went in there terrified. But now things are different, aren't they? Now, through Christ, the way has been opened into the presence of the Father. By shedding His blood, Christ has cleansed His people once and for all. And through His resurrection, Christ has secured our standing before God. So the curtain in the temple was torn in two, not only to signify that Christ's sacrifice was final, but also as an invitation to come in. The tearing of the veil is the Father saying, Come to me. And ask. So when Jesus speaks of asking the Father in His name, this is what He has in view. Not merely a religious duty of prayer. But this remarkable, nearly unthinkable privilege of the new covenant. Namely, access to the presence of God. Secured by the resurrection of Jesus. Received by faith. We tend to take prayer for granted, but we ought not to. It is arguably the most precious privilege of the new covenant. So here's the big question before we move on. How do we exercise this incredible new covenant privilege? How do you exercise it? The answer, friends, is by faith in the Son of God. Notice the end of verse 27. Because you have loved me, Jesus says, here's the key, and have believed that I come from God. How do you come into God's presence with boldness? You come by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is how you exercise the new covenant privilege of prayer. You exercise it by faith. By believing that Jesus is the Son of God. By trusting that His blood cleanses you from all sin. And by banking your life on His resurrection. That's how we boldly pray in Jesus' name. We do so by faith. And every time we come into God's presence by faith, we are testifying of our confidence, not in ourselves, but in the resurrection of Christ for us. We come by faith. And this actually takes us all the way back to that word whatever in verse 23. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Does that mean God will give us whatever we want? No, that's far too shallow of a promise for the gospel. Whatever in verse 23 means that we come to God with boldness, asking for whatever it is that we need, without fearing that God will say, what are you doing here? Get out. That's what whatever means. You come with boldness to ask for whatever you need, trusting that God is not going to cast you out. Why not? Because the way into His presence has been opened by the blood of His Son and sealed by His resurrection. The whatever is not a blank check But it is boldness. Asked in faith. Right now, my whatever in prayer 
I'm, I'm boldly praying for healing in my dad's life. That's my whatever. And as I make that bold prayer, I trust that God is my Father in Jesus Christ, and therefore whatever He answers, it is for my good and for His glory. And so I ask it. I ask, trusting that God will do what He knows to be best. That kind of prayer, what we just unpacked in those verses from Jesus, that kind of prayer is an incredible privilege, and it's a privilege that we have received only because the tomb is empty. And so the grand application here, I know somebody's going to say, what's the practical takeaway, Pastor? Here it is. You ready? Write it down. Ready? Pray. That's the application. Pray. When you don't feel like it, pray. When you have sinned, pray. When it's been weeks upon end, pray. And do so by faith. The resurrection of Jesus equips us to pray with this boldness, and we do so only by faith. That's the second way the resurrection equips us. Let's look at the last way that we are equipped by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This last point really brings together all of Jesus' teaching, not just in this text, but in the whole farewell discourse, which, which stretches back to chapter 13. So this is like a culminating point for this section of John's gospel. Verses 29 to 33, equipping number three, Jesus' resurrection produces courageous confidence before the world. It produces courageous confidence before the world. We've noted all throughout the sermon the disciples' lack of understanding. And that theme, if you want to call it a theme, it reaches its climax in verses 29 and 30. Look there with me. Despite Jesus saying that the time for plain speech is in the future, the disciples think that it's right now. (laughs) Verse 29, now you're talking plainly. He just told you he's not going to do that now. But they say, now you're talking plainly. They even profess to understand everything that Jesus has been saying. Verse 30, I I point this out not to pile on the disciples, but to illustrate how deeply we need the Spirit of God to illuminate our hearts and minds in order to understand God's Word. The disciples continue to overestimate their strength and their understanding. Jesus, for his part, is not fooled. <laughs> Verse 31, he questions the disciples' newfound understanding. Do you now believe? He asks. Jesus knows the disciples better than they know themselves. In fact, Jesus' insight of the disciples is so accurate. He predicts their abandonment of him. Look at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. We're going to have plenty of time in the next couple of chapters to reflect on that dark moment when the disciples abandon their Lord and they leave Jesus to face the cross on his own. We'll have plenty of time to think about that in the coming weeks. At this point, I just want to highlight for you that Jesus is the only one who remains faithful to God to the end. This is what is implied when Jesus says, The Father is with me. The Father remains with the Son because the Son remains faithful to the Father. 
So with the cross right around the corner in John, the cross is coming, it's right around the corner, it is so incredibly important that we see there is only one faithful person willing to trust God to the end. And it's not us. It's Jesus. So verse 32 should be very sobering to you. Even the apostles were weak in their faith at times. Verse 32 is very sobering. But it's also this stirring reminder that our salvation rests not on our faithfulness, because we have none, but on the faithfulness of the Son of God. We're going to have more to say on that dynamic in just a couple of weeks. This morning, I want to conclude with how Jesus' resurrection gives courage to cowards. Look at verse 33, where the entire farewell discourse ends with a powerful word of triumph. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There are two remarkable provisions for us in verse 33. First of all, Jesus says that in Him we have peace. The world will hate Jesus' disciples because the world hates Jesus. But that hatred will not ultimately harm Jesus' disciples. Why not? Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, disciples have peace. Not peace with the world, but peace with God. So the peace here is not circumstantial. It's not the promise of an easy life. The peace of verse 33 is the knowledge that through faith in Christ, I have been reconciled to God. My sin has been atoned for by Jesus' blood. And my standing has been secured by Jesus' resurrection. And therefore I have peace. A peace that the world can't take away. I no longer stand under the wrath of God, but I stand righteous before God through faith. That's what Jesus means by peace. It's so much more than a promise of an easy life free from trouble. It's the promise of eternal life that endures trouble. And I'll want the latter rather than the former. So that's the first provision. In Jesus we have peace. That leads to the second provision in verse 33, courage. Courage. Jesus is very clear. Jesus preaches the gospel so much different than the way many churches preach the gospel. Jesus is very clear. We will have tribulation in the world. You want to follow me? You're going to have tribulation. You want to follow me? You better take up your cross. You want to follow me? You have to die to live. He's very clear. You're going to have trouble in the world. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be trials, hardship. That's what you're going to get in the world, according to Jesus. Tribulation. And yet, he also calls us to take heart. Do you see that? Take heart. This is fascinating. That, this particular verb, take heart, is used a handful of times in the New Testament. And it's used almost exclusively by Jesus. There's one instance where it's not used by Jesus, but it's used about Jesus, a situation that he's in. But in every other instance, this verb is only found on Jesus' lips in the New Testament. Take heart. In a sense then, it's like the personal encouragement of the good shepherd to his sheep. Take heart. The idea is to be firm, to be resolute, to be unmoved in the face of challenges. That's, that's what Jesus 
wants you to li- this is how he wants you to live in the world. You're going to have tribulation in the world and and his his word to you to face the tribulation is courage. Take heart, be courageous. Do you see the massive question that is hanging out there in the text at this point? There's a huge question. It almost jumps off the page. The disciples are about to abandon Jesus. He just said it in verse 32. They're about to abandon Jesus. So how in the world are they supposed to take courage? I I mean, you almost do a double take when you read through the verses the first time. Verse 32, you're all going to abandon me. Verse 33, take heart. Did, Did we miss something? Did the disciples somehow change from verse 32 to verse 33? What could possibly turn these cowardly disciples into courageous witnesses? The answer, friends, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Notice the final phrase. The entire farewell discourse from John 13 until now culminates in this phrase. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, here it is. I have overcome the world. The reason for courage, friends, is not found in us. I'm going to tell you the truth. We are just like the disciples in John 16. If you would have been there that night, you would have abandoned him too. We are just like the disciples in John 16. We are far more weak-willed than we would care to admit. So the source of courage is not in us. It's in Jesus, specifically in His resurrection. By rising from the dead, Jesus has overcome the world. The idea here is just like what it sounds. Triumph, victory, conquest. The world which hates God and resides in darkness has already been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. All of the world's hatred, all of the tribulations of this life, all of that cannot ultimately harm those who belong to Jesus. Why not? Because the tomb is empty. We have courage because Jesus Christ, our champion, has already won the war. The victory is already sealed. It is sure. And therefore, in the power of Jesus' resurrection triumph, we take heart. Listen, this is the pathway to courage. It's the same as the pathway to joy. It's learning by faith to see the world through the lens of of the resurrection of Christ. The world has done its worst by putting Jesus to death. And all that the world's worst accomplished was to establish our peace with God (laughs) through Jesus' blood. So come what may, we are not afraid. We are not afraid because Christ has overcome the world. That's the pathway to courage. Friends, we don't have to guess about what the days ahead are going to be like for the church. The days ahead are very, very, very surely going to be difficult. That's not on my authority. That's Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. So the days ahead will be difficult. But the good news is that we will not face them on our own. By going ahead of us to glory, Jesus has equipped us. He's given us a joy that endures sorrow He has opened the way into the Father's presence so we can pray with boldness. And He has conquered the world, giving us every reason for courage. 
So we may not have come to church thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we ought to. We ought to think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ every day. The resurrection is not simply the truth we celebrate on Easter. It's the truth that defines us and equips us every day to endure the world. And so we say, praise God, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. We don't want to labor in vain. And so we pray, Father, for the fruit-bearing work of the Holy Spirit. We are very prone, Father, to find our joy in things other than Christ. Would you lead us to repentance? We are very prone to take prayer for granted. Would you lead us to repentance? And we are very prone to overestimate our strength. Would you lead us to repentance? Help us, Father, to see our lives and this world through the lens of your finished work in Christ. That he is risen. He is risen indeed. And therefore we can rejoice. We can come boldly into your presence. And we can take heart. For our Savior has overcome the world. Help us, Father, to apply the truth of the gospel every day until we are conformed to the image of Christ and until the day he returns. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.